0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February the 15th, 2016, and it's a Monday. Usually I do listener feedback shows today. Uh, but what I'm going to do today is going to be kind of cool, like a variety show. It's going to be like three different subjects crammed into about 20 minutes each. Uh, I mentioned last week I might do a show on business and business acumen and definitions and things like that. I realized, okay, that could turn into like a two-hour show, and the, even though you might like it, you probably won't retain a lot of it, but if I hit you with some of the things that are most important, for growing a business, developing a business, building a business, and, and do that in 20 minutes, you'll probably remember all of it and be able to put it to practical use. I also want to do some follow-up on mead making. That'll probably be 10, 15 minutes, maybe a little bit longer uh, on on small batch mead making. Some things I see people doing that I think are mistakes that I want to warn you about, and kind of ask you to have a little more patience with what your efforts are, because uh, that might help you. And I have a, some cool new things to tell you about in the world of mead making. Uh, that you can uh, use for your meat and cider making, both. Uh, the last, I want to give you this year's initial vaccination. Yes, I, Jack Spirico, am going to vaccinate you against political bullshit, and it's time for your first vaccination. This is going to be like a series where you get a vaccination and some booster shots along the year, but... There's a whole lot of crap going on right now over the fact that, uh, that one of the Supreme Court justices uh, did die, one of the more conservative justices in a Republican plan, and uh, there's going to be so much. And there's going to be so much more over the next eight, nine months, guys, it, 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 all the way up until the end of the year. Even when the election's over, there's going to be a ton of crap all the way up until the inauguration. And my problem with that is every second you spend focused on something you don't control – is a second robbed from your life. And I'd like you to have as much opportunity to build your life this year as possible rather than be distracted by nonsense the way the machine wants you distracted. So that's what today's show is going to be about. Before I get into that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Chef Keith Snow. Chef Keith is an awesome guy. He's a member of our expert council, long-term sponsor of the show, and he just has an awesome website. If you get over to harvesteating.com, you're going to find all kinds of great stuff. First, you can find the stuff that he sells, his organic teas, his spices, seasoning mixes, and other products. I use Chef Keith's spices and seasoning mixes on a daily basis pretty much. Uh, If I'm not reaching for uh, the northern Italian, I'm probably reaching for low and slow or Montana steak or the new prime rib stuff or the chicken curry. It's just all awesome he also teaches you how to focus on the technique over the recipe in cooking how to make cooking a life skill how to cook seasonally and locally he's got a lot of great videos on his website a lot of great blog posts a lot of great recipes and he's got an awesome podcast you can find it all at harvesteating.com and remember chef keith is a member of our expert council if you have a question about cooking you get it into me and we'll get you an answer for it on a friday show chef keith snow at harvesteating.com long term sp- sponsor great partner great fellow prepper, and just one of the most awesome guys you'll ever meet. Check out his website again today at harvesteating.com. Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, It's really easy to endorse a company when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer For over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, A lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of publication at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription, you're a new subscriber, they have a deal for you in the member support brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John. Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay. Knowing that you know, after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do, it's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I have two for you today in the year 1731, since it's episode 1731. I have the last execution for witchcraft in Europe, and I have Franklin's first public library and libraries today. I'm going to read the Franklin one. I just want to kind of say you might really want to read Alex Shrug's uh, take on witchcraft and how women, you were accused of it in the past because, well, you were going through menopause. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to say that's... Something to think about. But I also want to kind of point out that if it's the last one in 1731, that means as recently as just a few hundred years ago, we're still killing people by calling them witches. And a lot of the witch hunt mentality still exists today. A lot of bullshit there, too. And I guess it was all bullshit back then, but it mattered to you if you were the one being accused of being a witch burned or hung or whatever was going to be done to you. Anyway, Franklin's first public library in libraries today. A few years ago, Benjamin Franklin established a club for moral improvement called the Leather Apron Club. It was also called Junto after the Whig Junto uh, in Great Britain, which, considered the prime, which consisted of the Prime Minister and his cabinet. Each Friday, they meet and a subject is brought up for discussion. Often, someone will reference a book to support his position, so the club members decide to keep their books at Mr. Grace's home. This is not as convenient as they first imagined. So they take back their books and Franklin organizes a subscription library. A membership fee of 40 shillings is charged, over $400 in modern money, for free access to existing books and 10 shillings a year, over $100 in modern money, to go toward new purchases. This is a lot of money, so only 50 people subscribe initially, mostly tradesmen. Non-members can borrow books after leaving a deposit equal to the replacement cost of the book. This is the first subscription library in the British colonies, and it will grow into the Library Company of Philadelphia. It will remain the largest library in the United States until the Civil War. In the modern day, it will become a history research library open to the public. My take by Alex Shrug: The difference between a public library and a subscription library have been blurred. A public library is usually funded by taxes, but the tax money is often spent on returning, renting books from subscription services, eventually rental bookstores. A few books are purchased for the long term, but to fill the need of the public, they will rent additional books for initial search. E-books and digital audiobooks are also rented. Libraries redirect their members to subscription websites. The library pays a fee to the subscription library so that the public library members can have access to the subscription service. Thus, e-books can be checked out and downloaded to one smartphone. A phone. The big building libraries are going the way of the dinosaur. so naturally the city of Austin, Texas, is spending millions to build a shiny new library opening in November of 2016. Apparently those digital books take up a lot of space. Yes, indeed. Now, whenever I come out and say something about libraries, kind of about having outlived their usefulness in their modern form. I hear from a lot of people that say, but libraries are useful. I mean, I go there with my kids and we we watch movies that we we check out for free and we do research and, you know, it's a great thing. Well, it is a great thing. It's just that people's money is stolen to provide it. Now, of the things that money is stolen to do in this country – Libraries go up there with being one of the more useful and the more benign things that is done with stolen money, but it it is still stolen money. I would like to point that out. And, And my real view is that libraries are going to become dinosaurs at this point no matter what because we just don't need them anymore because technology has exceeded our need for them in their current form. And that there's probably ways today that we could make something like a library for a subscription service that would do way more than most public libraries have ever done for like seven, eight bucks a month. No, that's not possible. Um, have you ever considered that you probably have a membership to such a library right now? You just don't rent books from it. You get movies and TV shows from it, like Netflix. Yep. That's the modern library. That's the library of the future, a Netflix model uh, that will become something that I believe, and the reason I'm putting this out today is we're going to talk about business today, that some smart entrepreneurs will end up developing their own unique collections of material on a subscription service. My take by Jack Spierko. And I think they will outdo anything public libraries have ever done, by the way, in the next 10 to 15 years. Before we go on from there, I do have a quick little uh, significant events bullet point for the year 1731 because there's some cool things that happened this year. Martha Washington Knee Dandridge is born to a Virginia planter as the wife of President George Washington. She will be simply known as Lady Washington. Independence Hall began as the Philadelphia State House constructed this year. And Number 10 Downing Street is constructed this year as the residence of the British Prime Minister. So those are... Two pretty uh, long-lasting construction projects that began in 1731. Next up, remember the MSB is a great value, and right now we're running a sale that expires tonight at midnight. Yes, this is your last chance. I'm running a sale right now. If you use the discount code LIFE30, L-I-F-E-30, you can get a, you can get a discount on, uh, MSB for one year for 30 bucks a year. And since it says life, that might cue you into something. That rate locks in for the rest of your life. You will get that rate forever. And this sale is going to go away tonight. And no, I will not be making exceptions for people that forgot or their dog ate their podcast or what have you. Uh, you can also try a six month membership for only 15 bucks. Uh, that's try 15 is the code for that. Again, this is for new customers or customers with expired accounts. Only the system limitations in my, the programming of my system, I can't let people renew early with PayPal. It just doesn't work. If you want to renew early, you can do it with the form on the website. Today is president's day. So I will take forms. They come in if they're postmarked tomorrow. Uh, but after that, we're done. It's over. It's the only time I'm going to do this sale this year, this way. Uh, the, the, the response has been incredible. And, uh, I'm really happy. A lot of you guys got this great deal, but this is it. It's it's over at the end of the day. There'll be a link in the show notes today to a post that explains the whole thing. If you want to get in on it, but again, you got till midnight central time tonight, and no more. It goes away, vanishes like a fart in the wind. All right. So with that, let's get into uh, the main topic of today's show. And uh, like I said, it's really three main topics. And I had, I had mentioned last week that I should do a show again on on business, and I'm going to start out on business. And uh, I I really think this is something I need to talk about because I see a lot of people that are making plans for a business, and that's great. And I see a lot of people starting out really small, and that's great too. But I also see people saying, well, I'm going to do this, and it's going to result in X. And I just do some basic math and go, yeah, no, it won't. No, it won't. It does not have the... Volume necessary to generate the, the the amount of income that you're looking for, even if you had 100 percent profit, then nobody has 100 percent profit. Even if something requires no material costs, there's your labor in there. So you know if you make 100 percent profit on something, but it, you made a dollar, and you have uh, uh, you know an hour into it, you just made a dollar an hour. So you're actually at a negative there because you could go work at the at the donut shop. And make more than a dollar an hour. You could go work at McDonald's and make more than a dollar an hour. In fact, most of McDonald's will pay you more than minimum wage, despite what you may have heard. So, when I see stuff like that, I, I never and you know I kind of answered a couple questions on businesses from a standpoint of you know farming type businesses last week. And I want this to be much broader than that. This could be anything. This could be anything from from being a computer programmer to to making soap, uh, to growing food, to you know. I don't know, anything you would want to do to be a podcaster. These are universal ideals with selling a product or a service uh, and developing a customer base. But what I want to start out with business is something that you would think would be just bluntly obvious to people. But I've, I've seen way too many examples. And I think it's more that I see it with farming stuff than anything else. So I'll use it as an example. But I'm sure it happens all over the place. I had a buddy one time wanted to start a t-shirt business. And he was ready to buy into, like, one of these kiosk-type things because he thought it was a neat thing that these shirts changed color in, in the in, in the different temperatures. Like, when you went outside, the shirt changed color. And uh, He had done none of the math to determine, like, well, how many shirts do you have to sell to break even? And then how many do you have to sell to make a profit? And then since this is kind of like a micro-franchise thing, how long do you have to do that before you, you, you break even on your initial investment? If you're doing you know a debt to get into it how long does it take to get debt free how long do you have to survive before your profit actually goes into your pocket you hadn't done any of the math but I see it a lot of times too and like I'll see it with eggs you know we're gonna we're gonna get 20 chickens and we're gonna sell eggs and that's gonna pay for our car payment no it's not I'm sorry no it's not I don't care if you get eight dollars a dozen for chicken eggs it's not gonna do it not unless you have a really cheap car payment because the 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 math isn't there. So actually, I kind of mucked up my math um, last week in giving an example about our ducks. But just to give you an example, I believe that our ducks will be producing about 60 eggs a day for us at about the end of this week to the beginning of next week, and then we'll we'll kind of climb from there. But that'll be a pretty annual average because we have our low periods in the winter, and then we ramp way up. You know, we have we may have days getting 80 uh, in the next couple months, but 60 is a pretty good average. So, if I take 60 times 30 for the month, that gives me 18, 1,800 eggs. If I divide that by 12, because I sell in units of 12, I get 150 dozen. And if I take that and I multiply that by 8, I get $1,200. Now, I have a pretty big duck operation. I have over 100 ducks to be able to do that, and I do need to call some males, but... I haven't really felt like it, and they're not really costing me that much, so I haven't done so yet. But, but you understand now, like so that's what it takes to do that. Our feed cost into those birds will be about five hundred dollars, so we can make a net profit, not counting the time Dorothy and I spend on this, of about seven hundred bucks. So we can buy make a pretty nice car payment with that. We. That almost pays our underlying mortgage. If you take the the, the, uh, the principal and interest portion, or not the principal and interest, if you just took the principal and interest on our loan on our house, our, our ducks pretty much pay our mortgage. Now they don't pay the insurance, the PMI, the taxes, but the underlying principal and interest, they're you know, it's around 800 bucks, so they're pretty close to covering that for us. But that's the volume that it takes to be able to do that. That's a lot. And that means we have to turn those over. We have to sell all of those. And we're able to do that. And we're able to do that because we follow many of the principles that I want to give you today. But, but that's like if you think you're going to do something akin to that with 20 animals or if you're going to make pens, that you're going to do hand, hand-turned wood pens. I see a lot of people doing that. It's a cool little hobby. And people say, well, I want to do enough of that to make a living. Do you even know? how many you need to make and sell to make a living. And do you know how to change that number? So that's what people don't really understand. If you do the math, you start figuring out, well, what can I change? It's not always sell more, make more. Sometimes it's sell for more. It's sometimes it's sell a package with five or six things, and I'm only making one of them, so I have a fixed cost and a known source for all the rest of it. Right? These are these are ways you have to start thinking. And If you don't do the math, You never figure these things out. And what happens is a business is a dream instead of a reality. And I actually have a pretty cool meme that I made today. It's Bruce Lee in a suit, because we're talking about business today, not beating people up, right? And there's three quotes, and I actually have them in reverse order on the meme from the order I'm doing them in the show, because they just fit in the meme better based on how long they were. But But the quote that I think applies to the business section today is, Life is wide limitless, there is no border, there's no frontier. And and, and that, to me, is business. Too many people come into business with an employee mindset. There's there's rules of business, but there's no rules for you. right? There's certain things you have to do in business, or business will fail. But how that's applied is totally up to the business owner and the entrepreneur. Customer service is important, but... How we apply it. Some businesses take the approach of every customer needs to be coddled like a child and loved on and wrapped in a blanket and made warm and made to feel good even when they're an unreasonable customer. And certain businesses set up certain ways that actually can work for them very well. For most small businesses, you have to take trouble making customers and fire them so that you can love and warm up and take care of your good customers that are worthy of the time that you have to give. And when you're in a part-time business, man, that's the case you have to get rid of bad customers so you have to understand there's no borders or frontiers or limits things that you would get fired for at a job you're not going to get fired for in your own business but if you make mistakes through years and you're going to have to own them and it all starts with doing the math so that we get a practical understanding of what our limitations that we've created for ourselves are so that we can move and change them and that's why you have to do the math. Not because it's stodgy, not because you need a business plan to give to a, you know, an angel investor or something like that. Because you need to know the basics of the fundamentals. And it can be very, very basic. So when I introduced MSB initially, Member Support Brigade, for this podcast, I said to myself, my initial goal is to bring in about $50,000 a year. If I can bring in $50,000 a year, you know, I'm okay. It's not going to replace my full-time income, but I can build it from there and I can pay my bills. And to do that, I, I probably actually need to take in about $60,000 a year. So when I when I, when I I did all the math and figured everything out, I figured that some people would buy the $50 a year product and some people would buy a $5 a month product and some people would quit and some people would stick around and I would run sales and there would be some people on lower rates, that if I could get about 1,250 members into the MSB that I could make $50,000 a year. That's that's what it would take. So that became the goal. And then I worked toward that goal. And then I could actually measure the progress toward that goal as I was measuring my progress toward leaving behind a job and and working and owning another company I didn't want to own anymore and saying, here, I'm selling out my interest for next to nothing. You guys take it and do with it as you see fit. And having all, all, all the people involved look at me like I was crazy. But by the time I did that, they're like, well, oh, you think you're going to make this work? No, this is already working. But then I was able to to look at the progression toward the goal and realize the velocity that I was moving towards it at. And that meant when I tried something different, I was able to look and see, well, did that accelerate things? Or did that slow them down? And then it was okay. Now that we've reached that, now that we can walk away, now let's set the goal to make this a six-figure income. All I have to do is what I already did, again, and now I have full time to do it. So it was relatively easy, and it happened faster. But without doing that basic math, none of that stuff happens. So there's some things you need to think about in doing the math. One I talked about last week was COGS. Another one was ARPU. I'm going to explain both of those. ARPU is a, a term a lot of people in business don't know Because even though it applies universally to all businesses, it's really a term out of the telecom, telecommunications, internet world. Average revenue per user. And then the way you make it universal is you change user to unit or average revenue per unit. And in unit, you don't necessarily mean, okay, a pen is a unit. A unit is a sale, a transaction. So this is what, remember I said that, If you figure out, oh, I have to make 10,000 pens a year or I have to have the ducks lay 20,000 eggs a month or whatever it is to make the income goal that you need for the business to be viable, profitable, and grow from that point on to making your life better, that you you could do certain things that wouldn't mean, okay, I have to make that many pens. Or if I want to go from X to Y, I don't have to double the number of pens that I make and ship. There's other ways to do it are poozed away. And the reason it comes out of telecom is telecom got into this bundling thing a long time before you heard the word bundle. That was the goal. And since I was in that industry, I knew it. And that is, you know, most people today have, like, they have, like, cable, cell phone. If you still have a phone in the house, it's probably VOIP service, but you have that, right? And you have all of it bundled on one bill. And if you don't, you have people marketing the idea to you. Come over to AT and T and get Dish or whatever it is AT and doing, where they don't have cable, you know, um, and, and trying to form these partnerships and get one customer to have multiple products that they're buying, and that's because if I increase my average revenue per user or unit, I increase my profits without actually having to do a whole lot more. So if I if I wanted to double, let's say i, have, I was a big business, I have a telecom service of some kind, I have ten thousand customers. And those ten thousand customers uh are all into me for ten dollars a month. I like got a little mini telecom business, right? Just to make the numbers easy. So that makes me a hundred grand right there. Now if I want to make two hundred grand out of this business, most people would say, well what you need to do is do what you did again, just like Jack did with MSP. No, another way to do it is to increase the average revenue per user from ten dollars to twenty dollars. Well, how do I do that? I come up with add-on services that exceed the goal. See, if I only tack on 10 bucks to adding on add-on services, I need 100% penetration. Now, it doesn't mean I won't do it, but what I really want to do is I want to set a goal to get my average $10 customer up to about 30 bucks. If I can do that, then I, I reduce the count of what I need to convert to get it done. I only need to get about a third of them onto that program. Now, I'm still wanting to grow my customer base, and I'm still willing to take customers that I only upsell to 20 bucks. But if I have that $30 target, then a third of my customers converted will push me up toward getting that total goal. I actually need more than that, but when you average it out, you end up with, now I can upgrade, let's say, one-third to a half of my customers and get beyond my initial goal. And you have to do the math. And I'm throwing around numbers at this. And, 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 guys, I really think it benefits people to learn the basis of, basics of using Excel to the point where if you take one of those, like, computer professor or whatever courses, it just basically teaches you how to put basic math formulas into a cell, following, you know, the my dear Aunt Sally rules, multiply, divide, before you add or subtract, and creating these formulas so that you can just, once you create a, a cut sheet, you can just go in and say, well, if, these, if every one of these customers is increased by 10 bucks, what does that do? You, throw, you just change the number from 66 to 76 and boom. And then you create another one that, that creates factors. If one-third upgrade, if two-thirds upgrade, if 10% upgrade. And you can just keep creating all these cells in a workbook, and every time you want to know what happens, you plug a number, and then bam, it comes up. There's not really anything off the shelf that does that, because you're to- tailoring it specifically to your business with your own inputs. But that average revenue per unit is everything, and it can be simple. So like, like I said, we have our ducks. They can produce so much for us. We bring in quail. We sell the quail eggs. Our target price on the quail eggs is $5 to a 15-pack. Right now we're at 4 to a 15-pack because I don't have the birds in the lifestyle that I want them and to sell it at, the premium I want to sell it at. And I'm training my customers to expect that premium, and it might even be higher. I don't know. So I, I, I want – because I already have an existing customer base. I'm basically saying this product isn't where I believe it needs to be yet to charge you full price for it. So I'm buying their loyalty with a discount initially with an expectation it's going to go up. But let's let's take a look at what happens to our average revenue per unit here. So instead – I know I'm at capacity with the ducks. And again, this could be turning pens. This could be a, a software product. This could be anything. It doesn't matter. I'm just using an example that's a real-world example. So if I have a customer that comes in and buys four dozen duck eggs, it's 32 bucks. But if I can sell them four 15-packs of quail eggs, which is kind of easy to do. We, we're out of quail eggs already. It's, it's crazy. But if I can do that at 5 bucks a piece, I add $20 to my ARPU. Without doing a lot more work because that customer's already coming anyway. This follows the basic rule of the first sale is the most difficult sale you'll ever make with any customer. Once a customer's spending money with you, they have their wallet out, it's open. If you just put other shit in front of them, they'll buy it. That's why they have all the candy and crap at the checkout counter, magazines and stuff like that. I'm bored, I'm in line, I'll read a magazine, oh there's a recipe I could make, that article's interesting shit, I have to check out now, I'll throw it on the counter and buy it. Uh, I, I think I have some bad breath or some mint gum. Like, It's so easy to add on sales that you're crazy for not doing it. That's the number one way to push ARPU up. So you just get that understanding now. The next is COGS, cost of goods sold. This is the most screwed up number in all small businesses. At least some entrepreneurs know what they have into a product. So they'll say, for, for this you know, pen that I built... I have two bucks in the wood, I have five bucks in the pen kit, whatever, and I have uh, 750 in the pen. And then I, if I sell it for fifteen dollars, I make a hundred percent markup, I make 750 in profit. Do you? So did you have a machine, a robot make the thing? How many hours did you put into there? So the cost of goods sold has to have a labor component. And it's the number one thing small business people fail to put into their financial models. And the problem with that is, okay, it's fine until you have to scale. I understand it's a hobby. I understand it's something that you like doing. I understand all of that. But if you actually build it to the point where it's a significant income and you want it to go up, unless you can increase your ARPU with peripheral products, if you want to expand your customer base... You have to put more time in. And if you don't want to put more time in, that means you need to hire labor. And if you go to hire labor and you've been basically discounting your own labor, that doesn't mean somebody else is going to. So you can't really think about scaling a business if you don't put labor into your cogs. Again, cost of goods sold. What does it cost me to produce this item? And there's ways to avoid that. You let somebody else do the labor from the beginning. You come up with a product. You come up with somebody that can make it for you. Let's say you wanted to do what I want to do, and I'm I'm still kicking around how to do it because I don't want to do what I'm about to give you uh, as a solution because I haven't found anybody I think would do it right for me. But let's say you want to go in the business of of, of teas, hand-blended custom tea blends. And you're going to use that to increase your ARPU, selling to an existing customer base, exactly what we want to do. Well, then you have to order all the stuff and there's a material cost, there's a shipping cost. But then there's a labor component of actually doing it, mixing it up, sounds easy until you start realizing in the quantities we're talking about it's a lot of work. So then if you have 10 hours into it and you value your time at, let's say, $50 an hour, then you have $500 of labor into it. Because that also, it doesn't just include packaging it. it. includes you get it in, you unpackage it, you repackage it, then you take it, you label it, whatever you have to do to comply with law. And then when you sell it, there's a time component to the sales process, right? And if you have to ship it, then you have to pack it for shipment. All of these things factor in. So what you could do is you find a company that's completely set up solely for the purpose of doing what I'm talking about, a, a company that of, of making food and beverage products. And you say, this is my spec. Quote me a unit cost and quantity. Quote me, do shipping. So basically the order comes in, I take the money, I pay you, you ship, whatever. You come up with a deal where somebody else does everything. And all you do is market and sell the product and specify the product and do some basic quality control. Like I'm going to order for myself and make sure they're doing what they said they're going to do. And the product looks like it did when we originally specced it out. And at that point, you have a, a solid cogs. If you're selling a jar of that product for eight bucks and they're charging you four bucks all in to, to make it and ship it to your customer, you have a true profit of four dollars. And now you can find someone else to do it to increase your ARPU with. You can find something to add on to that. You can come up with packages to go together. That, you know, the customers have bought this also like this. Why do you think Amazon does that? Why do you think every shopping cart program is set up to do that today because it works and because it's how you, those two numbers are the most important two numbers that generally entrepreneurs don't know the real number for. That's why I did them. The next thing you really want to know when it comes to running a business with a cash flow that requires a cash investment to get product out to the market that has this ongoing turnover is you need to know your burn rate. If you don't know your burn rate, you've you've got a real problem because you could be burning all the money you have before you're done with what you need to be doing. So burn rate is, I have cash on hand. I have cash in the business. And if we keep spending at the current rate that we're at, how long before that burn rate hits the zero? And you need to know that even if you say, well, we have sales coming in. Well, I, I don't care. What's my burn rate? Because I also need to tie that to daily sales or weekly sales reporting And determine if that burn rate is going up or down. Because right now you might have a burn rate that's infinite. I have so much sales coming in that there's enough profit there that the burn rate is infinitesimal that it's not going to go away. But every time you decide to take money out of the... You have to pay yourself out of a business. Or why are you doing it? Or you decide, I'm going to go and I'm going to market my business now. I'm going to buy this advertising. Okay? and people say well that's part of growing sure it's part of growing but what does it do to your burn rate if if, if sales don't go up if they stay constant and you take $5,000 out of the business today does it ex- it's going to accelerate your burn rate but by how much these are the things that you have to look at with burn rates. so it's one of the most important things i'm not going to say more on it now just other than m- most people don't know and here's where it really hurts people people don't know their burn rate when they're funding a business out of pocket cuz it's small So there is no money in the business. Just when I need more feed from my birds, I go buy it. And I keep records. Please keep records. Please deduct your expenses. Please please don't pay government money they don't deserve. Um, But they don't think, well, how much feed am I going to buy this month? What are my sales this month going to be based on my production and my customer base? So how rapidly am I burning through funds? Because I'm going to need the same money next month. They're going to want to eat again. Or I'm going to need to make more of these things again. Right so burn rate is key. Next I want to talk about three things you never say in a real business unless you want your business to go bankrupt. And people say it all the time. The first one is when things pick up. You know, well we'll we'll be all right when things pick up. Um you know it's it, it's a little slow right now but when things pick up we'll invest in that product offering. If you start saying that your business will not pick up It's not going to pick up. It's never going to pick up. If you notice that your business is down, what you need to be saying is, what do we do right now to increase sales? What do we do right now to pick this up ourselves? What have we stopped doing that we were doing that was working? Or what were we doing that was working that's no longer working? So in general, people look around and say, well, you know, it's just slow. It's probably not. It's probably not. You probably have competitors selling shit every day. And you're not keeping up with them. You have to figure out why. The next thing is, the market is simply down for now. So it's not just when things pick up for us. Come on, Jack, you're just being a dick. Look, at we're in a recession or whatever it is. There, <laughs> during the height of the recession in, in the United States, 2008-2009, there were still trillions of dollars flying all over the place. Smart businesses were still making money. In fact, some of the biggest profits ever made were made from the period of 2008 to 2015, just like I said they would be if you were listening to me back then. Because smart businesses know that even when people are laying people off or whatever, there's still tons of money out there, and you're not worried about the people that don't have money to buy what you have and don't want what you have, right, or want what you have but can't afford it, or or could afford it but don't want it. You only want one kind of customer, the person that wants what you have and can afford it that's it and they're always out there. So if you if you use the excuse of since the market's down then you're kind of wrapped right back up into when things pick up. Right? You're you're waiting for the rising tide to float all boats. The tides ebb and flow. You can't wait for the rising tide. You got to get your boat offshore and find the places that are navigable now. The last one and the most in serious way To make sure you destroy a business is to say we have no competition. Now, I don't mean competition doesn't affect us. I would say in my duck business, competition doesn't affect me. But we have competition. The the, the market for duck eggs is measured in billions of dollars, and we make thousands of dollars. There's a huge market. Somebody's selling it. It's not all mine, therefore I have competition. When you say you don't have competition, what that means is I'm not willing to look at what other people are doing that's successful. Instead, I'm going to figure out all my own shit, and that means you're going to find all your own mistakes. So I don't like people that constantly assess about their competition. But I also don't like people that ignore the fact that their competitors are out there. See, a person doesn't have to be a direct competitor with you to be a competitor. You could be in another state. They don't you don't even sell to the same customers. They're still taking a piece of the pie that you're engaged in. And it's still a market force. And you understand the market force. And when you see a competitor going bankrupt, it might be a good idea to figure out why they're going bankrupt. So you don't do that shit. When you see a competitor hitting home run after home run after home run, you might you don't go copy it. What you do is you analyze the technique and then adapt the technique to yourself. Okay? So that's just a, an immediate alarm for me. When somebody wants to pitch a business to me, and I I seldom listen anymore. But when I'm willing to, like they want me to be part of it or invest in it or something like that, you know, and they bring a business plan and all, and I say, well, let's talk about your competitors. Well, we have no competitors. Ant, wrong answer, out the door. If I was on Shark Tank, that that's that would be my thing, right? If I was on the show Shark Tank. So tell me about your competitors. Well, we don't have any competition. I'm out. Don't even want to hear it. Don't want to hear jack shit because I can't work with you because you are. You are either irrational, or if you're right, I don't want anything to do with it. I love building and creating new markets, but they're always within larger markets that are established. If you have no competition and you're serious, that means nobody is successfully doing anything similar to what you're proposing that you're going to do. And those things, if they do happen, they have to be very unique and they don't last long. Plexiglass was an example of that. And it still broke the rule. So what I mean, in the 70s, if you were selling plexiglass, you'd go out to a place that could use your product, and you'd say, hey, would you like to see a piece of glass that won't break? And the guy that you were talking to said, whatever. And you pull out a piece of thick plexiglass, you take a rubber mallet, you smack it on a desk, you smack it again, you smack it again, you pull out your order sheet, you lay it in front of your customer, and go, how much of it would you like? And people got orders that way all the time. And... Now, if you want to buy plexiglass, you can go anywhere and just get plexiglass. It's no big deal anymore. But see, here's the thing. If you had been in that business right now, who's your competitors? Well, I don't have any competitors. Yes, you do. Everybody making glass was your competitor. That See, that's what I'm saying. When you have to analyze a market, you have to say, well, there's no one doing this. Yeah, but what market's it in? Because you can bet the glass salesman was going, hey, look, that stuff scratches, you know, it's not as clear. We have, you know, temper resistant, crack resistant, you know, all these. So you have a competitor. You just might be beating them about the head and shoulders for a while, but eventually you take all that sweet spot business away, and then you're back to competing. And by the way, other people see what you're doing and enter that market, and you're competing with them. So we have no competition is a, a disastrous stance. Next. Four things that most people just don't get that are critical to your business. I'm going to go fast to them so we can get on the mead making today. The first one is features tell and benefits sell. It rhymes and it's true. Not everything that rhymes is true or is good advice, but in this case, it's absolutely great advice. And the fact that it rhymes helps you remember it. What I mean is, let's say you're making pens again, right? And I say, it's made from hand-turned mesquite. Okay, that's a feature. The benefit of that is it looks nice. People don't buy it because it's made of hand-turned mesquite. They buy it because hand-turned mesquite looks nice. Right? Um, if, if, If I'm selling you a duck egg and I say they have really big yolks, that's a feature. If I say they're beautiful, orange, delicious yolks, that's a benefit. They're healthy, they're nutritious, they have more protein, they're richer. These are all things that actually give you a benefit. If you bake with them, they make your cake rise in a, in a more uh, luxur- luxuriant way. It'll taste better. You're selling the benefit, not the feature. And most people write all of their copy and do all of their marketing, all their selling around the features rather than driving home the benefits. Right? It has 47 different settings. Well, your customer's only going to use two. It might be a good idea to figure out the two that are most used and say, it does this for you and that for you. And then the techno geek is going to buy it for the 45 other settings. He's going to buy it anyway. You, you're trying to reach the broader market. So you've got to sell to the benefit. The next one is that marketing is about storytelling. It's an exposure to belief. And he's done through a process of telling a story. That's why commercials are seldom, Hi, I'm John from John's Widgets. I'd like to tell you about our widgets. No, they show mom and dad using a widget and smiling. And little Billy runs up and goes, Can I use the widget too? Of course, Billy, it's easy. Anyone can do it, right? Look what the widget does. It's a story. That's why it's built on a story. That's why they don't have a doctor come on and say, the reason you should take Paxil is they have someone that looks unhappy and they take Paxil and then they open the door. They go out into the wild blue. Then they tell you it's going to destroy your liver, but whatever. And see, that's how you market. So even though many of these giant companies using these procedures are detestable companies, in my opinion, the formula works. That's why they do it, and you can emulate it. So understand, in your marketing, you want to tell a story you use your your features that tell in your story to expose the comp the customer to the benefit of that feature. Since it looks like this, it's really beautiful, and your friends will want one too. Because that's great. Because then they're going to say, "Hey, look at this! I, they they said you would want one too. I do want one. Oh, you get it over there." See, if marketing's done effectively, it naturally leads to viral marketing because you tell a story so simple to understand. And so clearly defined in benefit that your customer retells your story for you. That's what viral marketing is. It's not just getting somebody to, you know, share 20,000, you know, things or whatever on Facebook. If there's no story with it, if there's no belief in it, if there's nothing with it, then it doesn't actually result in anything other than general awareness of that one thing, right? It doesn't actually really help you as a brand. So you have to take that into account, that marketing is storytelling. The next thing is, sales is not marketing. Sales, instead of exposure to a belief in storytelling, is belief transfer. When I actually make you believe that my egg will taste better and be more nutritious than what you can buy in a store, then you'll buy it. If I expose you to that belief, but I fail to transfer the belief to you, you're just interested. You're a tire kicker. And as you start to kick the tires and ask questions... The sales process needs to provide you the answers that bring you into the fold of going from interested to buyer. So sales, this is one of the few things that I've I've ever come up with in my life that I believe is what's called an absolute definition. An absolute definition can be stated in five words or less and nothing else really needs to be said if the person you've said it to understands it. Sales, defined as, three words, transfer of belief. That is it. That is it. And if you can get people to tell your story and then develop either your own sales force or yourself personally or a website or anything else to be able to receive those interested parties and transfer belief to them by answering their their buyer questions, you will have more customers than you can handle. That's all there is to it. And then the last one. People don't understand this. Never use words you have to explain to your market in your top-line marketing. I kind of abbreviated it in the bullet point. But, I mean, that's, that's something people do all the time. We're working on it now Is we're building out more awareness of what we do with permaculture, and I'm not using the word permaculture, in the top-line marketing. That's why our Facebook group around this is called Regenerative Agriculture. Anybody with a decent 8th grade education that if you say regenerative agriculture to, they go, that means it makes it better and it grows food. Oh, I get that. I'm interested. Now I can give you features and benefits. I can tell you about what we're doing in with my features and I can show you the benefits if you get involved. And then permaculture becomes a piece of that. Even if the whole thing really is permaculture, I want to use a word that people understand. That's why when I was teaching a lot about Hoogle culture, I called it woodcore beds, despite the dismay of Paul Wheaton, right? People know what it is. No, they don't. When I have somebody come to my farm and they say, oh, look at those trees growing in those hills over there. Oh, those are hoogle beds. They look at me like I have a lizard coming out of my ear, whistling Dixie, because it ate the mouse that used to whistle Dixie in your ear, if you know that old story, right? But if I say it's a woodcore bed... Even if they ask questions, like, that'll lead to questions, but they understand the basics. Oh, there's dirt, and there's wood inside there. Now they want to know why the wood's in there. I don't have to educate them to the word. But watch me educate them to the word in the process. Yeah, wood core beds. It's also called hugelkultur. came out of Austria and Germany. A guy that made it really famous is dude named Sepp Holzer. I learned about this online, and we're putting it into practice here. What happens is that wood, see? And then the trees need less water, and they have more nutrient. There's fungal activity down there, which makes them more uh, more viable. And they grow faster, and they put on better fruit that tastes better. Hey, that's that is what happens when you don't use words you have to explain. If you use a word you have to explain, then you have to take all of the energy that would simply have been telling the story, dropping the features and the benefits into their lap, to educating them something that they don't already know about. And people generally don't like that. They, and I know that like if you're an all, all-in all learner and you always want to learn new stuff, that's fine. But generally, people don't like to feel that a person is too much smarter than they are. And a number one way to make people feel that way is to start using a lot of big words that they don't know. Right? Because then they almost feel like you're too stupid to know this. I know that's not what you mean, but it's the basic psychology. So there you go. Just going to finish up the business thing. Never say these things. When things pick up, The market is simply down for now, and we have no competition. And remember, features tell, benefits sell. Marketing is storytelling. Sales is belief transfer, and never use words you have to explain to your market. If you follow those rules alone, you'll go far in building a business. Next, let's move into mead making. Like I told you, it's going to be a variety show today. This is going to be kind of cool. Uh, on mead making, there's a couple things that I wanted to talk about. One is this guy, J.D. Mullet, that started up the Underground Meadery. You should really get over to Facebook and search for the Underground Meadery and join. him. I or one of their moderators will prove you if you like making mead. Because there's some cool stuff there. He went to Walmart. And I'll put a link. I found the jar online. The jar online costs more even you know, not counting shipping then he said they are at Walmart. I'm going to get to Walmart and check them out. But apparently at Walmart, for like 12 bucks or something like that, they have these jars that kind of look like a barrel, and they have a metal top that screws on them, and they're two and a half gallons. So if you're making meads and ciders, and you're kind of like, you know, the 1-gallon stuff, great to get started, prove things out, but I want to scale my recipes up, but I don't want to necessarily go to 5- and 6-gallon batches. These are great, because what you can do then is make you know like two and a quarter gallons leaves plenty of headspace, and then when you rack that off, which if you don't know any of the terms I'm using now, I'll put a link to the two shows we did on small batch making. But basically, just taking if the major fermentations done, I got a lot of sediment on the bottom, and I'm gonna move stuff over, leaving fruit and and yeast sediment behind and and everything else, herbs behind, whatever it is I've done, and let it continue to clear out. When I rack that, like, two and a quarter gallon of volume, I could end up with about two true gallons. So I I think it's really cool. He said there's a couple things you have to do. One is the the lid doesn't really seal. It's got, like, a paper gasket or something, so you have to make a gasket for it. I think he made his out of a coffee can or something like that. Uh, But that's not a really hard thing to do. And then since the lid's metal, when you drill metal, it kind of tears. And getting a stopper in there for an airlock is a little more difficult. But I think a step bit, if you know what that is, or they also call them uni bits. And I'll put a link to an example of those on Harbor Freight today because that's like the cheapest place I know to get them. I think it would drill a much cleaner hole in metal. But he also figured out if you go to the, like Dollar General or the dollar store or something like that, they sell these, and I'll put a link to his post about this in the Underground Metery today on the, on the show. But they sell these plastic containers that are, you know, like a couple quarts or whatever at the dollar store for a buck. And the lids on those fit the glass jar perfectly. So you just take the metal lid and put it on the plastic one, and use it to store crap in your pantry. Take the plastic lid, put it on the glass one, it drill a hole in that, it drills much cleaner. Put your stopper and put your airlock in. Now you've got a 2.5-gallon glass fermenter for $15, bucks, let us say, after you buy an airlock and, and everything else. That's pretty cool. So if you've been wanting to, uh, to scale that up, consider that. Um, Also, I want to kind of say, because I see a lot of people in the Mead group, uh, the Amateur Cider group, the Regenerative Ag group, and the Underground Meadery group showing pictures of stuff they're bottling, and it's cloudy. Wah, wah, don't do that. Don't bottle cloudy stuff. It's not done yet. If it's not clear, wait till it clears or cold crash it. Cold crashing is stick it in a refrigerator and let it clear. Rack it off the sediment, put it back in there for a week, let it clear again, and then bottle it. If you're bottling cloudy stuff, it's not done yet. This comes through a bunch of things. One, the, the quality of the product just not going to be there for you. And after all this work, you, you kind of would like it to be the best quality that it can. Number two, it's very likely there's still some residual sugars in there. And if you're bottling something you want to be a still product, it's going to be slightly carbonated. If you're adding sugar to it and you put it into a bottle, you could end up with the bottle breaking on you, blowing up. Um, I've never heard of anybody actually harmed by this other than it makes a big freaking mess. So, you know, when you add your priming sugar, you end up over-priming if you want it to be carbonated. So please, guys, stop bottling the cloudy stuff. Uh, yeah, this, this segment's going to be much faster than a business one. The next thing is I've been doing all kinds of stuff. I have a kiwi peppermint mead going right now and some other things. On a whim, I decided to try a version of Michael Jordan's Summer Shanty. But instead of using orange and lemon, I decided to go get a fruit that was an orange cross with a lemon, Meyer lemons. So I made, here's the basic recipe. It's uh, two tablespoons of my three flowers blend, which is elder, chamomile, and heather flowers. I get them from Mountain Rose Herbs. About two tablespoons of that mix, and they're mixed in equal parts. And two Meyer lemons. You take the Meyer lemons in a zester, and you take the zest off them to get more surface area for the zest. The zest goes into the fermenter. You cut the Meyer lemons up into pieces. You squeeze the juice out of them into the fermenter, and you throw the whole damn thing in there. And then you pour about 160-degree water on top of that, about an inch inch over the top of them, and you let them sit there in the bottom of the fermenter. That pasteurizes them so that you don't have wild yeast and stuff on them. And uh, water comes out of a coffee pot at about 160-ish degrees, 150-ish degrees. And uh, what I've done is I've just measured how long it takes my electric kettle to get there. So... That's not going to set your pectin. You're not going to have any kind of haze from pectin in the lemon or whatever. So you, you lay that on there. And then you just go ahead and add your honey and keep mix, mixing it with water until you get it up to the level you want, pitch your yeast, and go on from there. And, of course, I've been doing this this yeast blend that I found, which is Pasteur Blanc, not Pasteur Blanc Champagne, which is some, how some people advertise the, the champagne yeast. Pasteur Blanc, made by Red Star, okay, who makes both of those. And uh, cuvee, C-U-V-E-E is how you spell cuvee. Red Star also makes the cuvee yeast. I use a packet of each, which is what you're, you're not supposed to do it. And it ferments very quickly, and it, it actually clears quite quickly. Well, with this Meyer lemon batch, it looked like it was starting to clear. It looked done. The airlock was not moving, you know, at all. So I took it out and threw it in the, the, the chest uh, freezer that's turned into a keyser, which means it's basically a big refrigerator. Uh, After about three days, man, it was crystal clear. All the stuff fell to the bottom. I need to rack it yet, but I went and I took a little glass and poured a little off the top, put it back on, and said, sample it early. Oh, my. It tastes like a lemony Chardonnay in many ways. Not completely the same, but similar. And my thought was, wow, you know what? I like Chardonnays that have that that lemony... Buttery feel, but also have that intensive vanilla and stuff like that from oak aging. So I found these uh, these these oak spiral things that are supposed to really speed up oak, oaking of your wines and meads, and I've ordered a couple. They're called oak infusion spirals, and, and what they do is it's like a basically a dowel made out of oak, and then there's cuts in them in a spiral formation, so you get long and short grain of the wood, and then they're toasted just like they toast. Um, things in a, like toast the inside of a barrel. And they're supposed to give you a really quick infusion of oak essence into your beverages, and they come in light, medium, dark. They come in American and French. So for Chardonnay, they usually generally use a lightly toasted American oak barrel. So I ordered a couple of them, and I'm going to make another batch of this Meyer lemon meat because this stuff's ready to bottle already. And uh, this time when I rack to the secondary, I'm going to go ahead and infuse it with about a third of one of these sticks to the gallon. And, uh, see how that comes out. So I thought that would be something for some of you guys to play with because I could see like, um, a cherry mead and I have a gallon of that sitting in front of me right now. A cherry mead with a dark toasted American oak bringing it over to kind of that bourbon-ish type thing. And you could, you know, that would be something you, I would say that once you get into the secondary with the oak, you'd take a little tastes of it and go, okay, that's what I want and let's, let's call it a day because you could overdo it. But that's like another way to really branch out and start doing some other cool things. And they're like 13 bucks for two of these sticks. And you can buy chips for a lot less, but I found with chips it takes a long, long, long time. So I'm going to give these things a whirl and see how they go. If anybody's used them, I would, I would like you to, uh, to let me know in the show notes today if you had good results with them. All the reviews I've read seem pretty cool. Uh, then I want to talk about just a few, few things about, that make the small batch method really cool. Number one, I, I talked about cold crashing, you know, if it's not done yet, put it in the refrigerator. If it if it's if it's still pushing air through the airlock in your primary fermenter, leave it alone. Wait till it's pretty much done. When you see that airlock kind of go dead level and it doesn't really push anymore, you don't see any bubbles coming through it, now it's time to think about racking or cold crashing or whatever. I like to cold crash in a primary and then rack to a secondary and then continue the cold crash for longer. I get really, really clear stuff that way. And what happens is all those fruits and herbs that are floating, they usually drop to the bottom, too. And that makes it rack nice. Because what happens when you get a layer of fruit over that fluffy yeast, and when you stick your racking cane down in there, you don't pull up much yeast. And it's pretty easy you know, to use like a screen or whatever and filter out the little bits of fruit. And a little tiny bit is no problem anyway. Um, but if you think about it, I've got a 6-gallon a batch of cider right now that needs to go into a, a Cornelius keg. Cold crashing that pretty much is going to happen in the keg, right? I don't have room to stick a six gallon fermenter, you know, Uh, and I got like a four and a half gallon batch of some meat in there that I just, the only way I'm going to be able to cold crash that is to get like four one gallon jugs and, and basically bottle into fermenters and then put those in the cooler to cold crash it. Where if you're doing small batches, two, you know, one to two gallons, you just make some space in the fridge and stick it in there for a week. So if you've got a you know a beer fridge out in the garage, guys or whatever, it's really easy to do. Um, it also doesn't take very long to bottle if you're gonna if you know. I, I don't mind doing big batches to keg, because you transfer it to the keg, lock the keg up, throw it in the kegerator, put the gas line on it, charge it to whatever PSI you're you trying and walk away for a week and come back, it's carbonated, clear, it's ready to go. Right? Um, but when you actually have to start putting stuff into bottles, you know a gallon is about is, is really five standard wine bottles and you usually end up with about four and then a little jar for tasting so it doesn't take long the bottle and since it's it's that way you can rack it into another bottle so you get it off the sediment and if you really want to you can get a funnel and you can pour it into the bottles right and you, you so you can do four wine bottles probably what eight nine 16 ounce swing top bottles stuff like that you can you can it's not a big deal to bottle label your bottles put them away when you're bottling five gallons it's a pain in the ass so that's another really great thing. And it's easy to rack, right? It's easy to move them around. Moving my big fermenters, I mean, think about it this way. If you have five gallons of water uh, it, 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 and, 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 and must and everything else that's in there, you've got over 40 pounds in this big sloshing around thing. A, a gallon jug is eight pounds. Even a two-gallon fermenter like we talked about earlier 16 pounds. You can pick that up walk around. Because here's what happens. You've let it settle out. Now you're going to move it to a place to rack it. You carry it, and you start stirring that sediment up. It's much easier to gently, lightly carry those small batches. I'm loving the small batch stuff. Give it a try. Make sure to check out Meads of the Week on YouTube. I'll have a link in the show notes today. I've done three episodes so far. There's another episode coming this week where we'll be talking about some of this and some other stuff. New meads coming out, things like that. Um, the show generally runs 8 to 12 minutes. So it's a quick, you know, watch it on YouTube type thing. And if you tune in this next episode coming this week, you'll see the new Jack. Yep. I started looking way too much like a maniac that ran up in the mountains. So I went and got my hair cut. I got my beard trimmed all up. So I'm looking all kind of polished up. So you get to see that too if you check out meads of the week. Uh, last today, I want to talk to you guys about politics and bullshit. Um, you know, I, I kind of said that, <sighs> I was going to give you an inoculation this week, and I really feel that you're going to need quite a few of them, because this election might be the biggest pile of crap you'll ever see. Um, There's so much to do in your life that you can't afford to have people take away your time. Remember what I t- told you over and over again, that they're going to put you in a hole in the ground someday, most likely, unless you've made other arrangements. And One way or another, there'll probably be a little plaque, or they'll at least do an obituary in the newspaper, and they'll put, you know, born, you know, whatever, da-da-da, year, deceased or died on this day. And in between those two days, there's a dash. And that dash is you. And you should realize that every time somebody takes you away from what really matters in your life... They're stealing that dash from you, a piece of it. You get it once, and it's over. And you have to decide what you want to do. So, so think about that. But I do want to kind of give you like something that's going on right now that I think you, you, you really might want to know about. Um, if you've been anywhere near a TV or radio, you've probably heard it. But uh, Chief Justice Anton Scalia uh, died, passed away. And he was probably the most conservative justice. And now, of course, this gives Barack Obama, one of the most progressive liberal presidents we've ever had, the opportunity to make one more appointment to the Supreme Court. But this is an election year, and and, and there could be a lot of stalling by the Senate to basically not let Barack Obama have that opportunity and to not have a justice appointed until the next presidency. There's a couple reasons to do this. Number one is that there's a chance that, you know, if you're a Republican, you guys will win. And that lets you obviously install a conservative justice versus probably a quite progressive and liberal justice. And so you can see where that might be attractive if you were the Republican Party. But the bigger deal is you get to introduce another element to rally your base of support so that you can win hey, look, this isn't just theoretical that the next president's going to appoint a Supreme Court justice. This is absolutely the case. Somebody has to do this, and if they get in, look what's going to happen. Ooh, scary, all right? Now, of course, the left is going berserk about this this, this, this nonsense that Republicans are doing, this game that they're playing with the Constitution and what have you. Here's the interesting thing. One of the, the senators going nuts over this is a guy named Chuck Schumer, right? You've probably heard of him. Did you know, though, in 2007, that Senator Schumer called for Democrats to block any new Supreme Court justice nominations by George W. Bush a full 19 months before Bush left office? So they did it, too. Here's So you're going to hear that. I guarantee you... You're going to hear of other times this was done by Democrats to interfere with judicial appointments by Republican presidents. They've both done it. But you're also going to hear it in a way that is like, see, this is just how it works. And it, they don't like it when it happens to them, but they like to do it when it happens you know, in their favor. Well, obviously, that's how most things are. But the reality is, This is unconstitutional behavior on both sides and it shouldn't be going on. As much as I don't like Barack Obama, as much as I don't like the idea of who he would put on the Supreme Court, that's not how it's supposed to work. The President is supposed to put forth a candidate and the Senate is supposed to debate the viability of the candidate and vote up or down. But Jack, you're an anarchist. You're not supposed to care. I don't care that much. But I do care how many people are being misled about this. So... I'm not going to go any deeper into that because that is what it is. There's there's nothing else to say about this at all. That's everything you need to know. The Democrats have done it in the past. It was wrong. The Republicans are doing it now. Constitutionally, it's wrong. It is. It is, it is deciding what parts of the Constitution to follow and when. Okay? And you're going to hear bullshit about how what's good for the goose is good for the gander when what you should be hearing is we need to stop this nonsense if you want to believe in that system. all right That's it. So keep that in mind as we move on from there. I, I think that what we need to understand so that we can be at peace with needing to worry about more about what we do than trying to change things is this election is going to be a disaster no matter who wins. If the the conservative hope right now to, to get rid of the madness that is Donald Trump. And I think Glenn Beck is ready to climb in bed with with him and, and make you know, sweet, passionate love to him from what I'm seeing coming out of Glenn Beck right now is Ted Cruz, who memorized the Constitution as a child, who is this amazing conservative. Okay, Ted Cruz, let's just be honest about who Ted Cruz is. Ted Cruz was a lightweight in Texas politics until he met his current wife, who was a Bush staffer, and who was a member of the Council of Foreign Relations, which Cruz has called a den of vipers. He's also lashed out at Goldman Sachs, where his wife is dun, dun, dun a vice president of Goldman Sachs for Houston. You just can't make this up. So I don't believe that Cruz is the marketing version of Cruz. I believe he is a mainstream candidate that has worked very hard to look non-mainstream. This doesn't concern me as much as I think... What I do take from him that I believe is his incredibly hawkish approach toward Soviet Union, or I'm sorry, Russia, because there's no Soviet Union anymore, Russia and the Middle East. I believe Ted Cruz is capable of causing World War III. If it's just talk, and what he means to do is no longer look like a coward in front of the world, and no longer look irrelevant, which is how we kind of look right now, then Maybe that strong diplomacy could be useful, but I don't think it's just talk. I, I believe he said I, he doesn't know what temperature sand melts at, but we're going to find out stuff like that. This is not what we need in, in the world today. To you know, I, I've often said there's not going to be World War III. This idiot might cause it. He really might. Move on to Donald Trump. I I I I don't get it. I don't get it. I really don't. The people that support Trump. The man has not actually proposed a single solution. He, he says shit like this we're gonna make America great again. And when you see what we're gonna do, you're gonna be very, very happy about it. And you won't believe how great America will be. When you see what we're gonna do, you're gonna just love it. And people go, yeah! I'm sorry. What what part of your brain did you have lobotomized? And he brings out Sarah Palin as an endorsement, and she sounds like whatever part of her brain understood sentence structure was tased a la John Stewart, some original material girl, if you've seen that. Right? I I, I just I I I am blown away that this country seems to support a man who has a track record of snapping his gasket, threatening to sue people, throwing tantrums, holds grudges to an office where he has the authority and the power to use bombers, when he hasn't proposed an actual nuts-and-bolts solution to any problem. We're going to make better deals with the Chinese. We're going to make Apple make phones in America. He hasn't actually said how he's going to do anything. And he comes off like an arrogant ass. Move over to the, the Democrat side. Hillary Clinton is a liar and a thief, period, I don't think she understands what's going on, and I think the only reason people support her is she's a woman, and it's time for a woman, which is asinine thinking. You don't elect somebody to the highest office in the land in the most powerful country in the world because they're black or white or a woman or a man or a space alien named Kodos or Kang. You do it because they're the most qualified person for the job. The other reason is this belief that, well, really we're getting Bill back. Yeah, I don't think so, and I'm not sure that would be a good idea anyway. But I think you've got this person that really is a mess. And then you've got Bernie Sanders, who's an avowed socialist. So, I'm just spitballing here. Are any of those good? Are any of those good? Don't tell me one's less bad. Are any of those good for America? I don't think so. Oh, I I personally don't think so. I'll I'll tell you something that might shock you. I think that the best outcome might be understand the word might might be Bernie Sanders. Oh my God! Jack's turned into a socialist. No 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 no. Jack's an anarchist. I don't think it might be because some of the things Bernie wants to do might be good, like free college or whatever, or breaking up the oligarchy you know, cabal or whatever. No, I think the reason that it might be best that Bernie wins is because I don't think he'll be able to accomplish the square root of jack shit as president. I don't think he'll be able to get anything done. The man never successfully sponsored a single bill in the Senate. Not once. He's never held a real job. He's never accomplished anything. He won't start World War III. He he might make some bad decisions militarily, but since I'm a non-interventionist, I actually think the power that's there would be used to unintervene in a few places. So I'm okay with that. When it comes to getting things done, I don't think the Democrats will work with him or the Republicans will work with him so since i want government to do less and i don't want them to do more a republican senate a republican congress and a, and a and a a president sanders results in gridlock for 4 years at least might might be the best outcome but none of them are good why do i spend so much time to make the case that none of them are good so you'll re- be willing to accept that it's just not going to be good that it's not the end of the world That it's not like if you get your guy, it's going to be okay? Because there's a certain beauty in fatalism. It allows you to say, okay, since we know it's going to suck, what's going to be good about the future, no matter who's president? And what can I do to partake in the good? So you focus your time where it belongs. And the things you could be doing that are more useful than what I'm going to call the ass Clown Circus okay? That's what a presidential election year is. It's a giant, two-ring, ass-clown circus. In ring one, we have Donald Trump. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Look at him go. Over here, we have Bernie Sanders. Look at all the free shit he's promising that he can't give away. Let's look at them argue with each other about which one of them has a better idea to make the two rings into one giant ring for the next four years. Look at all the ass clowns go. That's the election. So what's more productive than that? Hey, we did a whole segment today on business. Build a business in the next four or five years. Yeah, they'll tax you. Trump will tax you. Sanders will tramp you, tax you. Cruz will tax you. Yeah, Clinton will tax you. If somebody, if the, if the tortoise, If the the graceful tortoise, Jeb Bush, comes from behind to win, I think that's what Stuart called him, right? He'll tax you too, right? They're all going to tax you. You're still better off with more. So build a business. Take control of your life. Grow your own food like we talk about all the time. Focus for the next four years on on making wherever you have into something really productive for yourself. Ramp up your preps. This is why we prep, because bad shit happens. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Bad shit's going to happen. You watch, guys. You watch. For all the constitutional talk that you hear out of Ted Cruz, if this guy pulls it off and wins, you're going to see more surveillance of the American people. He might do it, quote-unquote, constitutionally, but he'll do it. See, my problem with Cruz is, I believe he'll stick to the Constitution, but I know how much authority the Constitution really gives a president, especially when it's effective in working with Congress and the Senate. Okay? So, there's going to be problems, there's going to be economic turmoil. There, there's going to be all kinds of crap going wrong. And that's why we prepare. Build your social and experiential capital. I think that's the most important thing you can be doing right now. Experiential capital is the value of the knowledge that you possess and in, in your ability to do things. Your social capital is how much value you have in who you know and who knows you and who's willing to work with you, who wants to work with you, who wants to be part of the things that you're doing. Who People that just know you're a good guy, you're a good woman. The, the, these are going to be the two most important forms of capital going forward. More important than financial capital because they're going to be convertible to financial capital. They already are, but they're going to become more so. So we're heading into uh, th- th- this Complete catechism, right? Uh, this is a disastrous future in some ways. But there's still going to be a lot that's good. So make the most of it. You know, I said I had quotes from Bruce Lee in a meme today. The one that I had for mead making is, knowing is not enough, we must apply. Willing is not enough, we must do. That applies to a lot of things, but with mead, that's how it works. You either do or you don't. But with this ass clown circus, I think it's Bruce Lee's most famous quote that applies most. Absorb what is useful, reject what is useless, and add what is specifically your own. Let's say you disagree with my take on the candidates. Let's say that you really think Bernie Sanders is a great guy and you really believe, because, I mean, people I, I hugely respect as people support Bernie Sanders. And not just I want free shit people. Ben Falk thinks that Bernie Sanders will be good for America. Ben Falk is actually leaning way toward anarchism. And basically says, I wish the system wasn't the way that it was. I wish it wasn't here, but it's what we have. And, you know, maybe you think, Jake, I know you're out there listening today, Ted Cruz really is the constitutional conservative we've been waiting for. You still do not benefit at all from the Asclon circus. Vote for whoever you want. Believe whatever you want about them. But please do not waste 2016... Buying tickets to watch the Asclon Circus. Absorb what is useful. So most of you that are going to vote have already made your decision on who you're going to vote for. You're going to vote for the D or the R, no matter who it is. Because I could say, Clinton v. Trump. And you're going to say, I'm going to do this. I could say, Clinton v. Cruz. I'm going to do this. Sanders v. Trump, I'm gonna do this. Sanders v. Cruz, I'm gonna it's gonna be one of those four. what's it's, it's, it's gonna be. Don't think there's gonna be any big changes. Not happening. Not happening. So you already have that decision made. You have your reasons for it. Nothing unless it's some kind of monumentous thing that explodes with scandal or something is gonna change that. And if you're voting for Clinton, that ain't even gonna change that. Okay? So why bother? Why bo- wait till you can vote? Check the box of your choice and spend the rest of the year absorbing what is useful, because there's nothing useful for you in the ass clown circus. So reject what is useless. What is more useless than the ass clown circus? How many times are you going to watch debates when you could be planning a business that actually is going to change your life? How long are you going to spend talking to your brother about why you should vote for your ass clown of choice when the two of you live in a state where that ass clown's already going to win or that ass clown's already going to lose and it doesn't matter what your brother does and it doesn't matter what you do and you just can't release it. You just can't let go of it and it's consuming you. How long are you going to sit around worried about just calling talk shows and going, oh, I believe this guy would be good for America. You think if you convince the radio host it's going to change anything? If radio hosts could get people elected, Barack Obama wouldn't be the President of the United States today. Come on. Let go. Think of the ass clown circus. Think of the whole totality of it. Think of the non-stop election coverage that's coming. Think of, it's Super Tuesday today, we're going to... Think about it all. And then think about this Bruce Lee quote. Absorb what is useful, reject what is useless. How much of it's useless? Reject it. Even if you want to participate, you only need to participate one time. you got another 365 days, 366 days in the year 2016. A bunch of them are already gone. You get an extra day in February. If you want to use that extra day to support your ass clown of choice, go ahead. Don't waste another freaking day. And and you have to start thinking this way now, because I'm telling you, it's going to suck you in. It's going to suck you in if you're, if you're willing to pay the price of one ticket to the Ass Clown Circus and go watch the Ass Clowns run around with rings and, 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 and talk nonsense. You're going to buy a second ticket and a third ticket. You're going to buy tickets for your family. You might as well just buy season tickets. Watch the Ass Clown Circus every day. You're better off watching baseball. At least baseball is real. At least the loser really lost and really thought they could win. At least the guy that's going to lose when two teams are matched up against each other and he's like, man, you know. You know the Braves are going to lose this game. They still can win. It still can happen. And it can still be genuine when it does. This ass Clown Circus is pre-programmed. They already know what's going to happen. They already know what's going to happen. They know what they're going to do with the results. Everybody knows who they're going to blame. Everybody knows who they're going to give credit to. It's programming. Let it go. Absorb what is useful, reject what is useless, and add specifically what is your own. When you're building a business, take all of the things that you've seen other people do that are useful, and reject everything that's useless to you, and then add your component to it. You're 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 the factor that changes things. You 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 are your own X factor in a business. Same with gardening. So with anything you're going to do, anything you're going to learn how to do, any skill you're going to teach yourself, take in all that is useful, reject what is useless, and add something to it that's unique. When you make meads, don't just make the meads I make. They'll try them so you have a baseline. But add things. Try different techniques. Don't be afraid to fail. Failure is only a step towards success. Just learn to mitigate risks of your failures, guys. You know, don't... If you jump off of a chair and you land wrong, you might sprain your ankle, but you're going to be okay. If you jump off a building, even a survivable jump and you land wrong because you haven't developed the skill to be able to do it yet, you're going to get hurt really bad. You could even end up dead. Think about that in all your decisions. And now I want to set up the song for today. This song is another song by Jimmy Buffett. Likely, if you're not a Jimmy Buffett fan, a song you've never heard, please listen to this song today. This is, this song is real life poetry. When I say real life poetry, it's poetry and it's about real life. This is a true, a true story of Jimmy and his relationship with his grandfather, who's no longer around, who was a sailor all his life. And in the words of the, the song, went from, from sailing ships to raking Jimmy's mom's backyard. And had trouble even adjusting back to land. A life of adventure. A life of adventure. Do you think when you're at that point in your life where you can no longer take all the adventures that you used to and you have to in some way settle for what's left of your life, you're going to think to yourself, boy, I wish I would have thought more about the election in 2016. Man, you know, I... If I would have just talked to my brother one more time, he might have voted for the other ass clown. That guy might have won, and and the whole world could be different today if I would have spent more time with that. Or are you going to think, I wish I would have done more for my family. I wish I would have had more adventures while I could. I wish I would have learned more. I wish I would have impacted more lives. I mean, really. Are you going to think, you know, I wish I would have worked one more hour of overtime at my job. Are you going to think, man, I wish I would have took that hour and figured out how to get out of my job. Or whatever it is that does it for you. This is a this song is is a beautiful song. And it's a true story of an amazing life that ends like most of our lives tend to do, in some level of mundaneness and in some level of reflection. But see, when you live that really full life and you get to the point where, well, I can still take the little schooner out, put my grandson in it, teach him how to sail it's not just enough it's more than enough it becomes the fulfillment of all those adventures passing them on no man lays on his deathbed wishing he voted differently no man lays on his deathbed wishing he he you know spent more time at the office we we, we, we lay on our deathbeds and if we have regrets we regret that we have not done enough for the people that are there with us at that point or that we've Already lost ourselves before they were gone. That's where our regrets lie. But the adventurer generally can lay down at that point and say, I'm ready to find out what comes next. Because I did the best I could with what I had and I focused on what mattered. And I got things done. And I've impacted people's lives. Think about that as you listen to this song. Think about that as they show you frame after frame of the Ass Clown Circus in 2016. Focus on what really matters. Enjoy your life. Build your life. Ramp up your preps. Get things done. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
1: I never used to miss the chance to climb upon his knees. Listen to the many tales of life upon the sea. We'd go sailing back on Barking teens and talk of things he did. Tomorrow, just a day away for the captain and the kids. world had gone from sailing ships To raking mom's backyard He never could adjust to land Although he tried so hard We both were growing older then Wiser with our years That's when I came to understand Of course his heart still steers. Winter fill the air. Though I cried, I was so proud to love a man so rare. He's somewhere on the ocean now, the place he ought to be. One hand on the starboard rail, he's waving back at me. I never used to miss the chance to climb upon his knee, listen to his many tales, life upon the sea. We'd go sailing back on bark talk of things he did. The world was just a day away for the captain. And the kid For the captain And this kid